0: Good morning, good to see you all this morning. Let's bow in prayer as we prepare our hearts to receive from the food of God's holy word. Let's pray together. Lord God, we recognize right now that you are in heaven. You see everything on earth You know every thought and intent of our hearts. You know our needs before we even talk to you about them. You know all about the sins we hide, all about the fears we have. You know all the struggles we've gone through. You know the choices we've made, the decisions we've made, and even though you know and you see all of that, we are amazed that you, the God of all the earth, the God who is in heaven, still loves us here on earth. And Lord, we've come to you as grateful people because of your love with which you've loved us. You've you've filled us with your love, love for you we turn our eyes to you this morning. We, we turn our hearts and our minds to your word because we want to hear from you. So open up our minds and hearts to hear from you. Unplug our ears. Soften our calloused hearts. Break through the, the apathy, the, the complacency that may be here in our hearts that we may not even want to admit to the person next to us because we're at church. Oh, Lord, we pray that you would revive, renew, do a new thing here. We are in awe of you. So speak to us, we pray through your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, it's election year, (laughs) and if you look on Facebook or Twitter or Instagram or watch Fox News or CNN, everybody is in a fit of rage or or some other sort of fit, about what's going on. And some of you, probably most of you, have at least heard news about the primaries. You've watched some of, the, some of these so-called debates, if you want to call them debates. They're not necessarily intelligent dialogue, but arguments, discussions, more like screaming matches. Sometimes it seems like it's just about who can yell the loudest and, and intelligible Unintelligible, conver- unintelligible conversation, but in all of this, what I'm hearing, and what we all hear, all across our culture, all across our country, is, is this celebrity-driven. Is this sort of party spirit? Not. I, I'm not talking about going out. To a party. I'm talking about I'm with this person or I'm with this person, you know, vote for Trump, go Rubio, or feel the burn, or whatever it is. And all of these catchphrases people have about their favorite candidate or the phrases they use about their candidate that they don't like. or, And, and, and we've created this sort of divided, and not sort of, but drastically divided culture, this political. This celebrity driven, this divided, disunited culture, and that's really how everything goes. That's the compass of our culture. Who's in? Who's out? Who are you with? You know, who are you voting for? You don't want to say, do you? Who's your favorite teacher? Who's your favorite presidential candidate? And Here's the danger we have in this, this compass kind of uh, driven culture, this compass that it's, it's who's popular or it's who has the most education or who seems the smartest or who has the most money or who has the most charisma or the most personality or stage presence. The danger in all of that is that the fault lines of the culture often invade the church. The sins of the culture always trickle down into the church. So it was in the church at Corinth. The city was changing the church, not the church changing the city. In the North Park Baptist Church, we are in danger of the fault lines, the sins of our culture, the celebrity-driven or political, divided, argumentative, angry elements in our culture trickling down even just Rapidly flowing into this church and our sister churches and churches all around the country. So who's who's your favorite pastor? What's your style of music that you prefer? What kind of clothing do you wear to church? I dress up. I dress down. You go back and forth. Or what kind of car do you drive on? What, how, how big is your auditorium? And all of these things are the fault lines that are in our culture that are sinful. They're sinful. And yet they invade the church. And we're in danger of that happening here, aren't we? Just as the church in Corinth, so we are in danger today. And the compass of our culture must not be the compass of the church because as those saved by the risen Jesus Christ who descended into heaven and who's returning again, what we see is the clear, loud call of all the epistles and all these exhortations to the church about unity is that the compass of the church is to be the cross of the crucified Christ, that which is foolishness to the world, that which doesn't make sense to the world is that which we cling to the banner under which we stand the the cry of the church is the cross the cross must be our compass the governing point that which we are orient- oriented around when i was had time i guess for a lot of backpacking i don't have much time for backpacking right now maybe when hudson gets a little bigger we can go backpacking together but this compass has seen a lot of miles it's It still works. It's pretty beat up. But I remember the first time that I I really had to use this compass because I was forced to use it in this disaster relief training program I was in. And they positioned us on one edge of this large track of woods. And they said, you have to travel three miles in the other direction following this chart. Here's your map. Here's your compass. Figure your way out of this Go, just go, and, and you got to follow your map and your compass. We're not helping you. Here's a sack lunch, and you have to land within 200 yards of that point on the other side of the woods. And, we're, and, and Okay, so we started hiking out, following the map and the compass, trying to, and, and the problem was, unless I have a picture of a, this is probably from an old military handbook, but a soldier getting, and some of you know what I'm talking about because you've done this, you have to get your sights in line in azimuth. I'm probably not pronouncing that correctly because I just read it in handbooks and had it pronounced me a long time ago. But you have to constantly keep your direction in sight. Follow the coordinates. Otherwise, you're going to veer off. And if you have to go three miles following a compass, if you just are one degree off or two degrees off or three degrees off, after three miles, you're going to be Way off. Way off. And the danger that we face as, as followers of Jesus Christ is that if we just get slightly off the cross as our compass, if we just go a little bit towards the way of the culture, we're eventually going to be way off and sin and disunity, division and discord and that which is not worship at all will be the norm in the church. It'll be the norm in the church. The cross must be our compass turn to Ephesians chapter 1. We're going to begin this six-part series on worship through the lens of love. Now we're not going to preach all the way through 1 Corinthians right now. We will sometime but but not this year because we're going other other directions in the in the word of god after easter we're going to start in the book of james but for the for six parts we're going to study specifically collective worship corporate worship that setting and and the problems that were existing in the church in corinth how that directly parallels to some of the problems that we face the questions that we face about all of us getting together and we all are different and we have different preferences and and likes and dislikes, and we are prone to have our eyes veer off that compass, which is the cross. We have that, that tendency to listen to the noise, the rage, the preferences of our culture, and just like the church in Corinth, we need to first start back at chapter one and listen to how it's easier said than lived, how the cross is very different, radically different, than the way everybody else is living. And that's going to govern how we worship. And I'm not just talking about when we gather and then when Matt has us stand up and sing. I'm talking about even when we're in the parking lot or preparing for worship collectively on Saturday when you go to your ABF classes or children's church or your Sunday school groups or Wednesday night or ladies Bible studies. All of that is when the church is gathered together for prayer, when we are celebrating the ordinances, when we're teaching the Bible, when we're giving from what God has given to us towards his work. That is an act of worship together as God's people. And the baseline for that, or I'll say the compass for that, must be Christ and him crucified, Paul is going to drive this home that we can 't miss it because he desperately wanted the Church of Corinth to not miss this because they had a major problem. There were all kinds of problems rooted in pride, rooted in the sins of the culture at the church in corinth and so so first Corinthians chapter one, look first at verse eighteen first eighteen of chapter one, the first Point, and now this is easier said than lived, so we're going to, we're going to e- explain, exposit, or apply this out as we go through these points. But the first difference between the gospel of the cross and our culture the gospel of the cross is counterintuitive, it's not what we would choose rationally, if we were just making the decision from our flesh, from our own mind, human wisdom. It's, it doesn't align with human wisdom. It's counterintuitive. The gospel of the cross is counterintuitive. So in verse 18 of 1 Corinthians chapter 1, look with me now here. For the word that is the message, the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, that is in the process of sanctification, we've been justified. Paul's made that clear. He's speaking to the church at Corinth in verses one, three, uh, verses 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, and on down. In the beginning of the chapter here, he's talking about how I've seen your faith affirmed. You are in Jesus Christ. You are, you are sanctified, meaning you've been justified positionally. You are sanctified, but their positional sanctification is not aligned with how they're living. They're justified, but they're not progressively being sanctified because they're resisting it because of their pride. But he says this, but to, the, to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. So it's, it's, it's counter what you would think would make sense according to those who are perishing, those who are lost, those who are outside of the new covenant community of the Spirit, those who have not been regenerated by the Spirit of God to new life through the blood of Jesus Christ and through his resurrection. But to them, it, it, it's, it's idiotic. It doesn't make sense. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. What does he mean by the power of God? That's one of those phrases that we can just just kind of blab out there in a way. Use it tritely, without any weight to it, because it's almost kind of church language. I want you to look at verse 24, because the Apostle Paul clearly defines what is the power of God, and it's maybe not what you think. Verse 24, but to those who are called, he's using the same, this is a chiastic structure, so he's repeating the same idea in another way later on down in the passage. Verse 24, but to those who are the called, that is those who are in Jesus Christ, those who are being saved by the power of God through Christ, those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, and here's how the Greek is constructed here. It's Christ, God, the power. Christ is the power of God. And so the NASB translates it, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. It's, it's so tight in the language that it's Christ and God's power is fully demonstrated, fully on display in Jesus, in Jesus the Messiah. You want to see the power of God fully demonstrated, fully on display, then look to Christ, the incarnate one, the one who came from heaven. The one who came down, lived a sinless life perfect life, the one who then died on the cross in our place willingly, voluntarily, followed every command that the Father had for him, walked every step to the cross for us, shed his blood on the cross, died, bleeding out with thorns pierced in his skull for us, and then that same one was put in a tomb, but on the third day he rose again, and he ascended into heaven, is now seated at the right hand of the Father, and he's returned turning. That's the full demonstration, the full display of the power of God is Christ. Can I get an amen this morning? Do I have to use this mic? Okay, so when he says that to those who are perishing, to those who are outside the family of God, who've never beheld Christ, that's foolishness. It doesn't make sense to the rational mind, but to us who know the rescuing power of God, we say It's Christ. It's Jesus, the returning one. The gospel of the cross is counterintuitive. It's counterintuitive. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. This is a judgment call from the book of Isaiah to those who had puffed themselves up with their own teaching. You can look in Isaiah 29, who thought that they knew all that they knew and that they were doing things their own way and it was going to be okay. And God said, I'm going to nullify all that. And he does. And he did through Christ on the cross. The gospel of the cross is counterintuitive. Oh, but we have a problem, don't we? I, I, I love education. I, I spent nine years in school after high school. <laughs> I'm still paying for it <laughs> in a number of ways. <laughs> they say it takes 10 years to get over seminary. So, well, I got a f- couple more years, a few more years to go after this. So, I, I love education. Not, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with learning, but the letters after our names do not equate Listen carefully. Letters after our names do not equal greater righteousness, greater significance, or greater effectiveness in God's view. It doesn't. Getting education may help you. It has helped me. It has helped me understand the word of God, to help me understand God, to fall in love with him more. Education and engineering, education and finance, education and design, or our, these are all worthwhile pursuits, but let us never forget that the letters after our names does not mean that we are more value, valuable, more significant, or have greater righteousness in the sight of God than somebody else. Because the gospel of the cross is our compass, not education. Because the gospel of the cross says, the power of God is on display. And a Jew who died on a Roman cross, <sighs> but he's God. And it overturns all of the cultural assumptions, the preconceived notions and prejudices. You can't look down, on your no- down your nose at somebody else when you know you all need Jesus just as much as they do. You get that? Right? Yes? Because <laughs> the gospel of the cross is, is counterintuitive. Where is the wise man? Throws out these rhetorical questions. Verse 20. Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish? The wisdom of the world. So the Greek word for wisdom is Sophia. This is feminine noun, Sophia. And I want you to see a little bit about what was going on in Corinth. Because the second point, the gospel of the cross is counterintuitive. Number two, the gospel of the cross is countercultural. It was countercultural back then and is countercultural today. Our, Our culture today, even in the church, is governed by credentials, by education, by money, by position, by reputation, and that's not the way it goes with the cross. It's countercultural. I want to show you a few maps of. So, here's an, an overview of the whole Mediterranean area. Over here, center left, you'll see Corinth. Now, zooming in, another Corinth, you see here. And they had this trans Asmithian root. So, this isthmus, it's kind of one of those difficult words to say. Greek is not an easy language to read out loud. It's moose. Can you say that with me? It's like it's me and it's me and root. You know. And so they had this important port, this passageway going right next to their large city. So they had all of these sailors, all of these educators, they had all of these people streaming through as they went on to go towards the East Mediterranean from the Ionian Sea you see to the left, and so the city was thriving At the time when Paul wrote this letter, the city had been rebuilt about one hundred and thirty years earlier, or the city had been rebuilt about one hundred and thirty years earlier, so everything was newer and fresh and exciting. The temple to Apollo was this bright, glitzy gold symbol, symbol of wealth, symbol of power, symbol of education. And Corinth had this reputation of being a a place of idle talk. People would follow what they called sophists, philosophers. Philosophy is really a a, a squeezed-together version of the, the wisdom of Philo, or the wisdom of men. And so people in Corinth would go around and and they would say, well, I'm with this philosopher. I'm with this sophist. I'm with this teacher. Who are you with? Well, let me see. I don't know. Who's more popular? And they had these schools all around Corinth and all around the the Greco-Roman culture. This is popular, but especially in Corinth. These schools were the, the most prominent orators in the city who trained their voice to speak with authority. And they didn't have a British accent back then. And, and, they, would, and they would win arguments. And they, it, was in, it was incredible education on rhetoric, on logic, and argumentation and debate. Much better than the presidential debates right now. I'll just say that. Just and I'm not telling you who I'm voting for. That wasn't as funny as I thought it'd be. <laughs> the presidential debates... So they had all these debates going on in, in the church in, 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 in Corinth, in the city, and these special orators would then gather wealthy children. These, these parents would send their children to these schools who would then teach them how to be prominent speakers because the only way to, to move up the echelons of society was to have this, this ability to communicate with great oratorical skill. And so... I want you to see even more closely now the city in Corinth. Yeah, there we go. Yeah, now you saw him. Thank you, Adam. Still today, this Isthmian route, they don't call it that anymore, but this Isthmian route, the trans mithian route here, runs to the right of the city of Corinth, and, and it's, it's an incredible piece of architecture. Now, there was probably a natural canal to begin with, but they dredged it out, they built it up, and still today they're bringing giant cruise ships down this canal. Isn't that amazing? Miles and miles down this tiny little canal running into the Mediterranean Sea. And so today it's still a popular tourist spot. Remember what I said at the beginning? The fault lines of the culture often invade the church. Look at verse 10 of chapter 1. Look at verse 10 of chapter 1, looking back. The context prior to this line 10 and following is that the Apostle Paul has been clearly saying, you're in Jesus Christ. You've been made alive in him. The similar theology you see in Ephesians 2. I know that this testimony concerning Christ was confirmed in you. You're not lacking any gift, he says. But then, out of that, he says this. Now, in verse 10, I exhort you. I urge you. Your translation might say, I beseech you. Listen carefully. Out of that gospel root, you're in Jesus Christ. Here's how you to live. I exhort you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that which you have fellowship with him, that you all agree that there be no divisions among you, but that you be made complete in the same mind and in the same judgment. For I have been informed concerning you, my brethren, by Chloe's people, that there are quarrels among you. There's arguments. There's gossip, slander, argumentativeness. Just like all the rest of the city. And we can we can stroll around North Park Baptist Church. Or we can be in each other's homes. Or maybe just to Another church that you know of, not this one. (laughs) And know of arguments. Know of quarrels. Know of people saying, I'm of Paul. I'm of Apollos. He was, I'm of Peter. You see that the highly educated people liked Apollos, that golden preacher they called him, golden-tongued communicator. He was trained under Paul and Aquila and Priscilla But then people in the working class preferred perhaps Paul or Peter. They identified with him more. And so they're creating these same schools of thought, these same separate divisions, just as those people in the city were following the sophists of various names and philosophers around town. And the clear implication of the gospel is that the... The fellowship that we have received, this horizontal reconciliation that we have received through Jesus Christ, not only applies to or vertical reconciliation we've received through Jesus Christ, it not only applies that way, but but horizontally with others. We're to be one and Christ is not divided. We're all following the compass of the cross. So he says, Has Christ been divided? Paul was not crucified for you, was he? Or or were you baptized in the name of Paul? And then he gives this parenthetical note. I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius so that no one would say you were baptized in my name. Now, I did baptize also the household of Stephanas. He's giving a little details. Beyond that, I I do not know whether I baptized any other. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not in cleverness of speech. You see, it's, it's not about human wisdom. It's not about his own skill in and of himself. He wants to exalt Christ so that the cross of Christ would not be nullified, would not be made void. Mark Dever said this, the local church should reflect the truth about God. If it is divided, it teaches everyone that Christ is divided. The very city that the church in Corinth was to be evangelizing was simply translating right over into the church. The church was being changed by the city. The church was being changed by the culture. The church was divided just like the city. And just pockets of argument and debate. How about with us? How about with me? It's it's not about me. It's not about you. It's about the cross of Jesus Christ. The compass should govern everything, every step we take. If we go off one degree and another degree, pretty soon we'll be completely off the rails. Division, disunity, immorality, all rooted in pride and in the belief that it's about me was destroying the church at Corinth and it could destroy North Park Baptist Church, but it doesn't have to. If we all walk completely in every step, in every thought, in every word, in every action with the cross in view, you and I must keep the cross of Christ in our sights all the time. Every time we encounter the possibility that we might disagree with somebody or dislike something that's going on, or be displeased about the direction of something. We look to the cross, not to ourselves. Right? The gospel of the cross is, is counterintuitive. The gospel of the cross is countercultural in every sense of the word. Turn back to the latter half of chapter one. We left off with his rhetorical questions. Look at verse 21 now. For sense and the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom... He's using this contrast, the the Sophia, the wisdom of God versus the wisdom of the world did not come to know God. The world in its own intellect, with all its education and all its great oratorical skill, could not come to know God. But God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached, that is the, the message of the cross, the logos of the cross, the word of the cross, As it says in verse 18, to save those who believe. For indeed, Jews ask for signs and Greeks search for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, to Jews a stumbling block, and to Gentiles foolishness. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. It's completely countercultural. That's why every word that we say must be chastened by the Holy Spirit to demonstrate the fruits of the Holy Spirit and lined up with the the message of the cross that it's not about me, it's really not about you. It's about Jesus Christ and him being exalted, not myself being adulated, not making a name for ourselves, but lifting up the name of Jesus Christ, the incarnate, the sacrificial Savior, the one who was buried, the one who rose again, the one who ascended and is returning. The Gospel of the Cross is countercultural, and the Gospel of the Cross is also countercomfort, because this is not what we would choose. You think Paul's command for them to all get along? To have the same mind—that's the word. He's the same mind. Do you think that was easy? Do you think that's easy for us? I go. Are you kidding? We can't even agree on paint colors. What about anything really significant? But paint colors are significant. What are you talking about? Music style and and how we teach this or technology or. The list goes on and on and on and on. Use of money and all sorts of things as a people of God together and a local expression of God's global plan called the church here in North Park Baptist that we all be of the same mind and not say, well, I'm kinda, I kind of like what Pastor John is doing. He's, I don't know about Tom or Michael. <laughs> I don't know. Or, see. or, or Tom. I, I really like Tom. Michael and John, I don't know. I like what the deacons are doing. Who cares about the pastors? (laughs) I like my ABF teacher. The only reason I'm coming here or I, I know I'm not stepping on any toes. Just throwing out hypothetical examples. You see, though, the fault lines of the culture often invade the church. We turn on the television and see politicians screaming at one another, political pundits arguing and debating people talk, talking about their preferred professor at school the preferred teacher the preferred pastor and there's no unity the only way for we as a church to dwell in unity is to be under the banner of the cross keeping the sights set on the cross of Jesus Christ say it's all about him it's not really about me so I'll willingly compromise I'll willingly love it's not comfortable, though. It's much easier to just kind of step back and have my little circle over here with people that look like me and sound like me and agree with me. Right? And that's not unity. Unity is not uniformity. It's not even all of us singing in unison. It's harmony. Together playing the same chord of praise to Jesus. The problem is some of us want to play smashing intervals. Because I want my note. I don't want to hear your note. But Jesus is saying that if we, if we all play together, I'm not much of a pianist. Here. And we willingly say, well, I'm going, to, I'm going to work with you. I'm going to love you. I'll minister to you. I'll care about you because it's not about me. Then we're worshiping through the lens of love because love is fully on display in the cross. gospel of the cross is is counterintuitive the gospel of the cross is countercultural the gospel of the cross is counter comfort so here's another hypothetical hypothetical story in the foyer and the conversation begins at church well I don't really think that program is the best or I don't know about this this music it's too old it's too new it's too much the same. It's too blended. Pastor Michael's preaching too long. I don't know about that kind of technology or that particular parking plan. Why are we doing that shuttle anyway? Do we have to run the venue? Should we? I'm just creating lots and lots of hypothetical things that never happen. What if I were part of that conversation with you? What I must do at that point and say, wait a minute, wait a minute, I need to look to the cross, to Christ, because I realize it's not about me. It's really not about my likes, dislikes, preferences. It's about him being exalted through all of us together. This is so different We're doing something very different than even many churches by saying we're going to have Grandpa Van. How old are you? (laughs) I'm thinking World War II vet, right? Gordy, Denny, Tom, Eric, Kim and Darius, Andy and Amy, all of these age brackets, all of these demographics, all singing the same song together. There are some churches that say, you know what? We're a church just for young people. There are a lot of churches that just say, we're just a church for older people. Some churches that just say, we'll have two services, and it basically becomes two churches. We'll have an 815 traditional music. We'll have a, a, a 930 or 11 contemporary music. But we're saying, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. It's that we all are together. Because God's call for his people is that we are unified under the message of the cross. No matter what age, no matter the education, no matter the ethnicity, praise God. And that is something radically different than what our culture does. You see? And through that, the message of the cross is proclaimed, not just through what I preach on a Sunday morning, but through how we live Every day of the week, as brothers and sisters together, men and women and children of every age, and people will stand back and say, "What are you talking about? How do you do that?" And we say, "Jesus, He is the only way. This is happening. Right? It's not through my keen ideas or your creativity. It's through the, Christ, the cross, Christ crucified." I want us to uh, bow our heads here and do some self evaluation because I'm thinking, some of you are probably thinking, has Pastor Michael overheard my conversations? And I'm saying, no, I haven't really. I've just been part of church life for almost 33 years, and I know what it's like in every church. There's a tendency to to be divided, to pick up the sins of the culture rather than look to Christ and Him crucified to follow man's wisdom rather than the wisdom and power of God which is fully on display in Christ. And I know that the gospel of the cross calls us to deny ourselves take up our cross, and follow him. And that's not easy. It's counter comfort. It's not the way we choose. It's counterintuitive. It's not the way our culture chooses. We're the laughing stock of our society if we live that way. It's counter cultural. But we rejoice knowing that it is the power of God. We're not ashamed of that gospel. But I realize that there's a tendency for all of us to pick up what's going on in our culture and just to live out what's in our flesh. And maybe for some of us here right now, this morning, some of you need to stand up and come down and meet each other at the front and reconcile because you've been creating a political celebrity-type attitude or click-type attitude. And just say, I'm going to come to the cross together. I'm going to come and I'm going to fall on my knees and confess I need, I, need, I need forgiveness. I need forgiveness from Jesus. Maybe for some of you here this morning, you're, you are still looking to the wisdom of of mankind, what the culture sells, what seems rational, rational, reasonable, what makes sense. And you've never turned to the cross of Christ and bowed down, turned to him for salvation. You need to do that this morning. God is inviting you to the good news of his son, Jesus Christ. He came, he lived, he died, he rose, he ascended, he's returning He did that for you, He died in your place so that you could receive grace, new life, forgiveness of sin through him when you trust in him alone, not your good works, not your education, not your reputation, but in him alone. But for most of us here, we've either grown up in the church or we've been a part of the church for decades, right? That's you. I want you to think about these questions. How have you failed to keep the gospel of the cross in your sights? Right now, think about it. How have you failed to keep the gospel of the cross in your sights? And I'm saying this willingly admitting, I fail to do this almost every day. Ha, every day. (laughs) Maybe in your failure to love sacrificially, reconcile willingly, quickly, if you're holding sins, if you're holding bitterness bitterness against someone else, you're not forgiving as Christ has forgiven you. That's not the way of the cross. You're not keeping the cross in your sights when you withhold forgiveness, when you don't willingly reconcile. It's sin. You need to repent this morning and meet someone at the altar. Or maybe it's in you're just simply not repenting openly you, f- you fail to live in humility. Or s- maybe you fail to keep the gospel of the cross by not serving others quietly. When you serve others, it's loudly because you're trying to create a circle for yourself. You're not serving others quietly, you're doing it for your name. And that's, that's not the way of the cross. That's, you're losing the view. Or it's maybe in your prideful boasting about past accomplishments or achievements. Or maybe it's your celebrity or political focus. Or bad-mouthing a deacon or a pastor. Maybe it's in a self-centered, me-centered, I'm-here-to-get rather-than-to-give-attitude. I wrote those questions out because in every one of those questions, I at some point have failed. But God is asking you right now, what about you? To live as the, with the cross as your compass is to have Christ's mind in every situation, every conversation, every action every word because we're living for his glory, for his name, not our own. And we rejoice in that because it's the power of God until salvation to all of us who have believed. I'm going to have Lindsay play a little bit on the piano, and I want to invite those of you who, who answered yes to any of those questions to meet me here with some of the deacons, some of the deacons' wives. My wife will be up here too, Pastor Tom and his wife, and we want, to just, we want to heal together when we run to the cross together and say if we're going to do church together, we need to love one another and run to Jesus together. And may the cross be our compass. May the Lord be our life. May He alone receive all the glory and honor in every word we say, in every thought we think, in every step we take. Paul said, I I didn't come in cleverness of speech with worldly wisdom, but to simply Preach Christ in Him crucified and demonstration of the Spirit and power. Lord God, that's how we want to live and teach and preach here at North Park Baptist Church. If you agree with me when I just said that to the Lord, you just say yes. You say yes, yes, we want to preach. Christ in him crucified, not with cleverness of speech or man's wisdom, but in demonstration of God's spirit and power. Do you agree with that? You said that in good unison. Let's pray together. Let's meet each other here, either up front or in the foyer, and just willingly repent. And no, Jesus is waiting He is our banner. He is our compass. Lord God, we we confess, I confess that there are many times when I lift up myself in pride and think it's about me. And we recognize we're all prone to wander. We feel it. We feel the pull away. We feel the pull towards the lies that our culture buys. God, cleanse us refocus our eyes on the cross of your son Jesus Christ to the praise of your glorious grace. Let it be known in this church and through our lives every day until your son returns. That's our prayer, Lord. Lord, we repent openly right now. We cling to the cross. (laughs) Rejoice. Rejoice. The cross. Praise you, O God, for vertically reconciling us to yourself through the blood of your Son's cross. In Himself, He made peace for us. And you offer peace now through the work of your Holy Spirit and reconciliation among all of us as we focus on Christ. And so, God, this morning, we say we need that afresh here. I know there's so many needs, and I know you can meet them. You can work, God. In Jesus' name. Amen.